So I teach at Cedarville University, not far from here. And, and a few weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege of leading a spring break trip. We do some, some missions trips over spring break, and, and I took a team to Salt Lake City, Utah. Had never been there, and uh, if you're a fan of mountains, it's a place to go. I loved it. I love mountains. And so it was a great time. I had 20 students out there, and the scenery was just gorgeous. And man, I'll, I'll tell you, being there, the spiritual needs of that place were quite honestly daunting and overwhelming. Uh, so it was great to be there. Some area churches that were working diligently by God's grace to push back the darkness that is so present. And I learned some things while there that Utah is, is about 2.2% evangelical total in the state. Uh, no awakening has ever reached there in our country in that way. So they're in many ways pre-Christian uh, in that kind of place. And we saw there as we talked to people again and again were people in churches, just ordinary, normal people living by faith, living on mission, looking to share the gospel, make disciples, and do good works because of God's grace in their lives. And man, God's moving in some really beautiful ways, and it's really encouraging to see, even to talk to, in those days we were there, various people that don't yet believe in Christ and sharing the good news with them, some of them listening, and some of them taking in uh, to account what's being said from God's word. And it was amazing to me the simplicity of life that these Christians lived out there to say, man, we're just, whether it's our jobs or recreation or the restaurant we go to or the coffee shop or whatever we're doing, we're just trying to build relationships and share the gospel and make Christ known. And at first I watched them and thought, man, this is pretty like, radical Christian living, you know? They're, they're doing these things day to day. They're working hard at this. They're sharing the gospel left and right. And then it dawned on me as I, I observed this and talked to them and watched them and heard them, this is not radical Christian living. This is normal Christian living. This is what we do. Normal Christian living is faith in God expressed in every area of life in such a way that no part of your life could really be explained apart from your faith in God. That's what faith in God is. It's, it's in the nooks and crannies of all facets of your life in such a way that people could not explain your life or you could not explain your life apart from your faith in God. That's the reality of how we live as Christians. And Daniel in this series here, By Faith, is an amazing example of living by faith. A main idea I'd love to say to us today is, is this. True faith in God shapes every area of our lives, or, or this should shape every area of our lives. So we want to see here, how is that the case? We'll see four principles from Daniel's life that show us how he lived by faith. But I'll start in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 32, to see where Daniel's found in this section here. Hebrews 11, verse 32 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. There we are. Got Daniel there. 
quenched the power of fire, Daniel's friends, right? Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went out in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Can I just say briefly before we get to Daniel, that paragraph should tell us something. It should tell us as we live by faith, there is no guarantee of prosperity. Did you read the paragraph? So, some, like, raise the dead. Some stop the mouths of lions. And you're like, sounds good, sign me up. And some are sawn in two and mistreated and put in prison. You might say, never mind. Right? I just heard last Sunday at my church, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So just to say in this paragraph, living by faith is not a guarantee of ease and comfort. It's a guarantee of God's presence in every conceivable circumstance. And he is enough, friends. That's the key thing to keep in mind. So Daniel 1, if you want to turn there, because we, we read that paragraph in Hebrews, by faith, we see Daniel stated there implicitly. So a, a few principles here on, on Daniel with my faith. First in Daniel 1, faith in God is expressed in belief and conviction. So Daniel shows this, that faith in God is expressed in belief and conviction. So God told Israel in the Old Testament, look, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. And if you disobey, there are going to be consequences in Deuteronomy 26 to 28. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know pretty clearly Israel does okay at times. But for the most part, it's not going well for them. They disobey. They worship idols. They disobey God. They go the wrong way. And eventually, they're taken into exile into a foreign country. Uh, first, Assyria comes and destroys Israel. And then Babylon comes and destroys Judah in 586 BC. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes and overtakes Judah, and he gives a particular order in Daniel 1, verse 3. It says this, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, now picture that. We read that story and say, yep, heard that kid, got it. But imagine a foreign nation invading the U.S. Imagine them conquering the U.S. Imagine them killing many of us. Imagine them, them subjugating the rest of us. 
And then some of really good families, they decide, hey, we're going to take you guys, young, like high school, college students, we're taking you all back to our country. You don't know the culture, you don't know the customs, you don't know the language. Three years of indoctrination, you learn all this stuff, and you are meant to then be a subject and a servant to this new country. If you're like me, you're like, no, thank you. I'll pass. That, that's their scenario. That's where these guys are, young men. It'd be intimidating, disorienting, and unbelievably difficult to deal with. That's their scenario. So just imagine that's where you are. And it seems odd then to go on in Daniel 1, verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Now, if, if I'm Daniel, I'm thinking, I've got bigger issues than my diet, right? i got more things going on than just what I'm eating and drinking. I have more to be concerned about than just those things. And yet, he's saying, no, no, no. I've read the Bible, I've read the Old Testament. There's, we don't know all the details. There's some food and drink offered. And Daniel says, nope, I resolve not to defile myself with this. It goes on, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You would endanger my head with a king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your service for 10 days. Let's give them vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them, and that's what they did for 10 days. And it turns out they were in better shape, it says in this last verse. Uh, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So again, Daniel's read like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and he knows dietary laws that Jews are under. And he says, hey, I know what the word of God says. I'm aware of it. I have convictions about it. I don't care where I am and what's going on. I'm going to stand for what's right. So he decides to stand by his convictions and by his faith and not violate God's law when it quite honestly could have cost him. It's so easy, friends, to read Daniel 1. And if you read Daniel before, you're like, well, I know how this goes. That might not have gone well for him. He doesn't know in the moment how that's going to go. He just knows, I have convictions that are biblical, therefore I'm going to live by them, and I have no clue how that's going to go. It's like Esther. Say, hey, uh, I'll go to the king. Y'all fast and pray. I'll fast and pray, and we'll see what happens. I have no clue. I might die, so here we go. That, that, that's how we don't know. He didn't know that this is going to go in this way, and he stands by his convictions. And it goes on in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. 
In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. So friends, we should learn from Daniel's example here and know our Bibles and stand fast in our convictions. We know what we believe. We know why we believe it. We stand firm in it. We do that in times when the results are good. We do that in times when the results are bad. We do that when it's gain, and we do it when it costs us. Because either way, God is God, his word is his word, and his truth stands. So just ask us this question. Do we know what we believe, biblically and theologically, and why we believe it? It's convictions, friends, that will sustain us in the hardest of times, that will give us words to say in moments we're not sure what to say. Part of our time in Salt Lake City when we were there was just talking to a variety of people, and it's, a, it's an interesting city in that there's such, I'm sure you know, Mormon influence, but massively secular influence as well. It's a really interesting city. So you'll talk to some that are very religious and some who want nothing to do with that whatsoever. And our team had to deal with this and think through a variety of things. And they realized, man, if I'm going to share the gospel and stand on convictions in this place, I better know what I believe and why. Because they were asked questions by Mormons and by secularists and others. Like, why do you believe that? What do you think about this? And at times they're like, oh, boom, here it is. Other times they're saying, I need to be more solid in what I know here to say this with conviction and recognize what is in fact true. So conviction serves our witness. Conviction serves our discipleship. Conviction serves our lives as we go through good and hard circumstances. It guides us here. So I would just say, friends, as Covenant Church offers opportunities to learn the Bible and learn theology, take advantage. In your community groups, take time to read the Bible together and think well on it and pray together and know what you believe and why. And as you witness and think through all that is said from the Word of God to others, say it with love and with conviction. Secondly, in Daniel 2, faith in God is expressed in prayer and praise. The first, belief and conviction, and then prayer and praise. So we don't have time now, but in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and then he sets this, this thing before his magicians, his enchanters, his wise men of the day, and says, hey, you to tell me the dream that I dreamed and its interpretation. And they're savvy. They're like, hey, why don't you tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. And uh, he's like, no, no, no. If you're like legit, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they're again, through the, the chapter like, yeah, so tell us that dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he's like, hey, look, if you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, you and your families die. How's that? Then they get nervous. This is like way beyond us. He's like, okay, y'all die. So Daniel's one of these people in this group. And uh, Arioch, verse 15 of this chapter, the king's captain comes. And Daniel says to him, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time 
that he might show the interpretation to the king. What would you do? He goes, says, and Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, probably no one tomorrow is going to say to you, hey, I had a dream, tell it to me, and it's interpretation. Go. But there's a question raised that says, is our first response in life prayer? Are we a people that pray without ceasing? And then it goes on, and God gives him this, this dream and interpretation, and then later it says in this, this passage here, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets of kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you given wisdom and might, and now made this matter known that I've asked of you, he made it known to us the king's matter. So he's praying, and then God moves, and then he praises. His first response in this moment is to pray, and God moves, and his first thing is to praise. Is our first response prayer in life? Faith is expressed in prayer, and when God moves in some way, is our first response praise? Or just move through life and say, I'm going to be self-sufficient, and yeah, I did that. That's a question to, to ask. Many times, when difficulty or challenges arise, my response can be self-reliance, frustration, or despondency. Those are pretty typical for me. When things go hard, things go awry, self-reliance, frustration, and despondency. I was recently coming back on, on a flight, and this happens a lot, more it seems, in the last year or two. I, I have no idea. But the flight was delayed. Okay, I'm from New York, okay? So I grew, grew up, and so like we're, we're kind of a fast-paced people. So any delays always bother me, like every time. And so I, I can move very quickly to frustration, verbalizing things I should not verbalize, even despondency, like, we're never getting home. We're... My wife's always like, I, I think we will. No, nope, it's not happening. <laughs> Maybe I'm not alone. I don't know. Uh, confession time here. Or, or I go into superhero mode. I can fix this. I can fix this. I can do this. And it's not always wrong, obviously, to use our minds and our abilities to solve problems. God, God gave us these things to do so. But a question is, when problems arise in life, is our first response a faith-filled one? Prayer. And when God moves, is our first response to that movement a faithful one, which is praise and thanks? Or is our life more characterized by self-sufficiency and praise of our own ingenuity. Just a reminder to us to say we want to be a dependent people on God in prayer. We want to pray by ourselves. 
We want to pray in groups. We want to pray for long periods of time that are planned. We want to pray in spontaneous moments of praying without ceasing. We want to be people who express our faith in prayer and praise. Third, in Daniel 4, 5, and 6, won't read all that, obviously, but some excerpts here. Faith in God is expressed in fearing God, not man. So it's belief in convictions, it's prayer and praise, and also then fearing God, not man. Daniel 4, 5, and 6 include another of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, which Daniel interprets, and then if you know that story, he kind of goes like a beast, an animal for a while. And then Daniel confronts Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, and then being thrown into the lion's den to be devoured. Interesting chapters. So let's just see some excerpts here and just note a theme. Daniel 4, verse 19. So he's, he's here, he's just heard this dream Nebuchadnezzar had, and he's interpreting this for the king. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered, Daniel answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And then down to verse 27, he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. This, this is, he's going to say this to the most mighty man on the planet, the king of Babylon. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Then in Daniel 5, verse 17, this is the infamous handwriting on the wall, literally. And Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, is alarmed. He's a pagan guy who does not worship the God of the universe and calls Daniel like, hey, can you interpret this? I'll reward you. I'll give you all this stuff if you can do this. And Daniel 5, 17 Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself. <laughs> Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Then Daniel 6, we all know, we heard it well described earlier by whoever that was. I don't know, did a good job. But Daniel 6, the idea of the, the lion's den, right? laws passed, they're, they're conspiring against Daniel. He's been praying. They get a law written and signed, and guess what he does? He continues to be faithful and pray. So the consequence happens. Daniel 6.10, it says, When Daniel knew the document had been signed, this new law, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks for his God as he had done previously. In each of those passages, Daniel is in a, a hard spot. He's confronting two kings in four and five and then just doing a practice he knows will earn him death. That's the reality. That's where he is. He is speaking challenging words to the most powerful men of his day and when it's found out he'd be uh, such as lions, he's praying to God, he keeps praying. His faith demonstrates he fears God, not man. That's the reality. So Galatians 1 verse 10 says this, 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man, fear of man's a real thing. It's real. It gets expressed in a variety of ways in our lives, and we have to be very careful to avoid that temptation. Because people can do all kinds of negative things to us if they don't like us or our faith. So, so what are some signs, just to note here, some signs that I may fear man more than God? Just a couple things to consider. A few signs I might fear man more than God. One, you have a pattern of making bad decisions because you want to please other people. Two, you justify what you know is sin because other people are doing it. Three, you find your value and identity in what others say about you, not what God says about you. And four, this one might hit home for me at least, you keep your faith to yourself. That's a suggestion that we fear man more than God in, in some ways. And Matthew 10, is one text you get to later on perhaps, just clearly says, don't fear men, humans. Fear God. Fear of God leads to fearlessness. That's the idea we see there in that text. Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can only kill your body. And I'm like, well, that's a big deal, right? Right? That's a big thing. He says, hey, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell as judge and the one who can eternally save by grace. You fear God, not man, in that way. And, and friends, Daniel feared the Lord. It shows in these chapters, he was thinking, I want to please God. I want to show that he is great. He is glorious. He is mighty. My allegiance is to him ultimately in no other. And to say that's true and to show that in his life. And so friends, I just say, as you think through our, our, our identity and what is said of us and our sharing of the faith, our lifestyle, what we pursue as holy and loving, live in such a way that demonstrates I fear God and not what people think of me. I want to stand before God someday and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, that by his grace he empowers us to live in. And then finally here, faith in God is expressed in confession and repentance. So belief and conviction, prayer and praise, fearing God, not man, and then confession and repentance. Daniel 9 speaks of this. Faith in God is seen in recognizing that he is holy and just and a merciful and gracious God. So that's the, the beautiful thing. We confess our sins to God because he's holy, and we confess our sins to God because he's merciful. Don't miss both of those. We repent and confess sins to God because he is holy, blazing in his holiness, and he is merciful and gracious to forgive us of our sins. Daniel 9, Daniel prays on behalf of the nation. It says in the first year, verse 1, 
of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He does the math. He knows they're there at that end of 70 years, and he prays this prayer then. It says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And Daniel's praying that on behalf of the nation of Israel as a whole, saying, we get it, God. I'm confessing on their behalf. We've sinned. We're, we're in the wrong. We want to repent of that, turn away from that, and turn toward you, obedience to you. See, faith in God is humble. Faith in God is expressed in confession and repentance, knowing we need to repent daily. Charles Spurgeon once said, you are not living to God as you ought unless you repent daily. We're just, we're there, friends. We're saved. We're being transformed. We still fall short in a variety of ways, so we confess our sins to one another, James 5 says. We confess to God, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we sing these songs this morning with smiles, because we know there's forgiveness with Christ. If you don't know that today, here just to say, faith is expressed in confessing, I am a sinner. I do things, I think things, I'm motivated by, I, I have affections that are contrary to the will of God. I don't do things I ought to do. I do things I don't, I shouldn't do. And I am guilty before God in my sin. I can't make my way right before him myself. I can't save myself. I can't earn my salvation. I can't do the comparison game and say I'm better than him or her, so I'm okay. The reality is we need Christ. Christ came, the God-man, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life on our behalf to die on our behalf for our sins, paying our penalty, rising from the dead. We're celebrating that in a couple weeks here. And recognizing he is sovereign Lord who's made a way for my salvation such that if I confess my sins and say, I see who I am before you, Lord, and I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm turning from that to you in faith, receiving you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my treasure, that's the pathway to being saved from the guilt of our sins. That's called the gospel, friends. Good news. I can't see you well. I hope you're smiling, though. Because that's, that's good news. The reality is, I have life because I have Christ. And to say to all of us here today, you can have life 
because you can have Christ by confessing your sins, repenting, and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. To those who do know Christ here today, man, the call, friends, is to walk in the light, as 1 John 1 says. The call is to um, walk in ways where we're not coming into this place, putting on plastic faces and saying, hey, everything's great, everything's wonderful. I can recall as a kid going to church Sundays where there was hardship in my family. And on the way to church, in the van, on the way there, it was tense. Never for anyone here, I'm sure, but that happened. And we got out of the van and walked to the front doors of our church, go through the doors and get greeted by ushers and others, like, good morning, hey, how are you? And I'm like, that, that wasn't like happening two minutes ago. I recall that as a kid, and it bothered me. Because I think the call in our lives, part of expressing faith truly is to walk before one another in authenticity and honesty and confession. And when we have the boldness to say, I need help in this area, which is really hard to do, that then as brothers and sisters, we look to one another and say, man, we want to walk in this with you. That's what it means to live by faith together. You don't leave someone in their sin and say, well, that's a bad thing. No, you walk with them toward obedience. You don't leave someone in their suffering and say, well, that's, that's just terrible. No, you walk with them to healing. This is what it means to live by faith in community, in confession and repentance. So friends, true faith in God shapes every area of our lives, every area of our lives. Faith in God will be expressed in our lives in belief and convictions, prayer and praise, fearing God, not others, in confession and repentance. So the prayer today is to see Daniel's example of this and then to say, okay, let's call on our lives with all these saints that have gone before us to walk by faith. I don't know what tomorrow brings or the next day or the next year or the next decade, but I know God is faithful and we can trust him. Father, as we ponder this today, I pray that you would help us to recognize the beauty of walking by faith, that it's not simple, but that you never shift or change, and you are trustworthy in every area of our lives. So may our faith in you shape every area of our lives as we entrust ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay and sing.